So today we're looking at a piece of anthropological work on conspiracy theory theory. Nice. Uh, I'm assuming it's all about punching Nazis? Well... Because, as we all know, everything a person needs to know about anthropology can be summarised by the plot descriptions of five notable documentaries on the life of one Professor Henry Indiana Jones, well... whose first notable work was returning the Sankara Stones to a small village in India whilst also defeating the Thuggy Cult. A little bit racist, but it was the 1930s. But... And then, only a year later, he helped discover... Well, actually, he's, he's mostly along for the ride, but yeah, he was present when the Ark of the Covenant was opened, which caused a lot of face-melting consternation for German high command at the time. He punches several Nazis, but in the end he's just a bystander when, as the kids say, shit got real. <laughs> and of course, he was in part responsible for the Holy Grail falling into a crevice, which prevented the Fuhrer from gaining access to eternal life. Although the fact he and his dad did have sex with the same Nazi is the only reason they even got within sipping distance of the Grail. Uh... And then there was his attempt to smuggle the Spear of Destiny out of Europe, although it turned out to be a fake which is actually pointed out to the Nazis by a Nazi, but he did manage to get part of the Dial of Destiny from a Nazi, so that's a win. And of course, after the war, he discovered that flying saucers don't come from outer space, but rather inner space. No Nazis that time, it's the Ruskies he's fighting, psychic Ruskies. Oh. And then late in life, that whole Dial of Destiny thing saw him travel back in time in a bootstrap paradox way, and the Nazis get killed by ancient Greek ballistas. It's a bit anticlimactic, but the 70s was a messy time. Anyway, I'm assuming this paper's all about that kind of thing? No. No. Well, then it must be about famed archaeologist Lara Croft, whose first notable exploit was either killing a Japanese god or destroying Atlantis for the second time. It gets a bit confusing. A lot of wild animals get murdered, but as you can see... The Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy, featuring Josh Addison and M. Dentis. Hello and welcome to the Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy in Auckland, New Zealand. I'm Josh Edison and sitting right next to me, so close I'm wearing them as a hat, it's Dr. M. R. X. Dentith. You were threatening to punch me before, now you want to wear me on your head like a crown. Both could be true. Also, you'd be punching yourself on the head effectively. Mm. And, and, and listeners, let me be clear, I didn't threaten to punch you in <laughs> no, the you face. I simply said it's a thing that's probably going to happen at some stage. <laughs> and then we agreed that... The more podcasts we do, the likelihood of it actually mm. occurring gets closer and closer to one. Yeah, that's, that's, that's just how statistics work, I'm afraid. That, I, that's I fate, no baby. Responsibility. That's fate. Mm. Anyway, uh, we're not here to talk about punching him in the face, although we could. Uh, because you've subjected me to anthropology, which, to be honest, I didn't actually mind. No, I actually... Good so for the soul. This is a paper I cite a lot. So it's a paper I kind of cite in the same breath that I cite... Jenna and Marty's paper, Dangerous Machinery. It's a paper I quite like. I think it commits a few mistakes, some of which I've also committed in the past, i.e. treatment of Brian's work. Mm -hmm. But generally, I think there's a lot to like about this paper. It is deserving of the masterpiece in the Conspiracy Theory Theory Masterpiece Theatre label. Right. I mean, it also might be a theatre, Although, as theatres go, I don't think journal articles make particularly good stages for holding plays. Not the, not the best, no. But should we then play the Conspiracy Theory Masterpiece Theatre chime and get right into it? Maybe we should. Maybe we will. Maybe I'll do that right now. Welcome to Conspiracy Theory Masterpiece Theatre. So, 
Is, is this just because we're starting to run out of... We've got close enough to the present that the current papers on, philosoph um, on philosophical papers on conspiracy theory theory haven't been around long enough to count as masterpieces that we're it's going to. It's a little bit discipline. of column A in that we need to kind of slow down, to let the literature build up so that we can apply the masterpiece label to papers of recent note. It's also because there are a few papers in which, well, we're getting to the point where suddenly I publish a lot. Right. And we have to work out a plan for talking around the fact that there's a quite a number of papers which may or may not be masterpieces, which definitely are written by me. And as you know, we don't cover those papers. No, no. As, although I have a, I, there's a, a chapter I co-wrote with Brian Alkeely. And of course, you've never met Brian. It would no. be a perfect chance for you and Brian to meet virtual face-to-face and talk with the maestro himself. Mm, so nice. we need to kind of arrange things. Mm. Brian is currently down, down country in the US uh, doing some house renovation related stuff. So we need to get dials in motion, gears flowing like clockwork, uh, sand flowing through the fingertips of our lives. Metaphors mixing in an uncontrolled manner, yes. Yeah. Mm. But we will get back to the recent stuff, because there's a lot of really good recent stuff, and there's also some really interesting recent stuff that we need to look at. But, also because we're doing masterpieces, we should be looking at things not just in philosophy. Mm. So we've done a bit of sociology, we've done a bit of political science, now we're doing a bit of anthropology, we've got a bit of social psychology coming up very soon. Ooh la la. We're doing some masterpieces from outside of philosophy. Mm. This particular masterpiece, of course, being Conspiracy Theories and Their Truth Trajectories by Matisse Pelkmans and Rhys McHold. Published in Focal, the Journal of Global and Historical Anthropology, back in the venerable age of 2011. And I know where I was mm -hmm. when I read this paper the first time. Where were you? I was on practicum at Freeman, Freeman's Bay School when I was doing my teaching degree. Mm. And I was reading it in the staff room of Freeman's Bay School when I was suffering from a very bad case of laryngitis. Huh. How about that? Mm. Some things never leave you, mm. like laryngitis. So 2011. Uh, I mean, I was reading this in 2014, so three years after right. it was published. But nevertheless, so this, so I, I, just just take us back a little bit. So we had the very first work in the late 90s, and then in, in philosophy at least. Where was the philosophy at? By 2011, if you can... So we've got the David Cody collection, which comes out in 2007. So we're basically... We're post-Brian, we're post-Charles. We're into the special issue that David Cody did. Actually, no, we're both the book David Cody did, Philosophical... Uh, the Philosophy of Conspiracy... Ah, no, actually, that's... The philosophical conspiracy theory is a philosophical debate, mm -hmm. and also the special issue of episteme that he published. At least he was the editor thereof. So you've got two collections of work, one of which is taking old work and commentaries, which is David Cody's book, and then we've got the special issue of episteme, which is dealing with new work by most of the usual suspects, and we've read all but one paper from that special issue, the only paper we haven't looked at, 
as Michael Borman's paper, and that's because it's so tangentially related to conspiracy theories, it's really not worth looking at. And now we're into the kind of the fellow period of publications around conspiracy theory, theory and philosophy, which is not to say nothing comes out. I think Curtis has one or two pieces that come out in this time, as does Juhal Reicher. But we're getting to the point where suddenly I'm going to burst onto the scene in 2016. Right. Yes, no, just looking through the references now, I see this particular paper. It references Lee Basham, Steve Clark, David Cody, Brian Keeley, Karl Marx, interestingly enough. But yes, so I, mean, I guess that does... You don't need to cite Karl Marx anymore. He's dead. He doesn't care about his H index at all. Wouldn't have thought so. No. Now, beginning at the beginning... Uh, this Which paper. we do like we to do. We do like We're, to do. It is yeah. traditional. Uh, it starts with an abstract. And it's my turn to read it. Feels like it's always your turn to read it. No, okay. see, it's, it's, you, you predominantly read all of the abstracts. You just think I'm reading them all. But actually, you read most of them. You take the lion's share of the abstract. Are I'm, you I'm suggesting I suffer back. from some sort of cognitive I'm bias? Back. I'm seizing back the abstract for this one. The sheer cheek of it. Off you go. This article aims to invigorate analytical debates on conspiracy theories. It argues that definitional attempts to set conspiracy theories apart from other theories are flawed. Blinded by the irrational reputation of conspiracy theories and deluded by the workings of institutionalized power, such approaches fail to recognize that there are no inherent differences between the two categories. We argue that assessment of conspiracy theories should focus not on the epistemological qualities of these theories, but on their interactions with the socio-political fields through which they travel. Because conspiracy theory is not a neutral term, but a powerful label, attention to processes of labeling highlights the... Oh, is she... That sentence I, I approached with the wrong cadence. Ah, I've been there, yep. Because conspiracy theory is not a neutral term, but a powerful label, attention to processes of labelling highlights these larger fields of power, while the theory's trajectories illuminate the mechanisms by which truth and untruth are created. As such, this article offers a way forward for assessing both the truth and the use value of conspiracy theories in the contemporary world. Mm. So as we'll see, it's, it takes a slightly different tack in some places from the philosophical articles we're used to, but it is quite quite similar. And interesting seeing right at the start they're saying that it's, you know, the, the attempts to set conspiracy theories apart from other theories and they're right away saying there are no inherent differences between the two categories. So we'll see where they take that. So. To the moon! Well, something like that. Yeah, the I mean, um, moon landing conspiracy yeah, theories do, they do, do feature in this, in this story. So the first section of this paper is called Blinded by Power. Should be Blinded by Science. Good Thomas Almost. Dolby reference. Mm, mm. He was in the film Rockula, you know. I don't I know neither him nor the film. You, you should watch Rockula. Is it like Dracula but with rock music? Yes. Huh. Yes, it's a musical about a vampire. Fan of music. You see, there's a new musical episode of Star Trek. Yeah, good music, stage direction, a bit subpar. I well, felt. that's the, the music is written by Kay Hanley, formerly of Letters well, to Cleo. Two people right, from sorry, Letters to, to, mm, to Cleo. Yes, the same people who did work on Jersey and the Pussycats. Indeed, and uh, other stuff. But so, so I'm, I'm a big fan of her work, but I'm a I'm a big hater of musicals and especially musical episodes of TV shows. So I think I will have to watch it and see whether my my love can overcome my hatred. 
see you tearing yourself apart. Mm, mm. And there, there are musicals which have songs about that. Mm, mm. Can't you hear me yell? Yeah. Anyway, anyway, anyway. To the paper. Blinded by Power, first section starts like this. As the object of conspiracy theories is secrecy, it is in their nature to attract popular attention. This is certainly true of recent times, which has seen an ever-expanding list of popular books and websites devoted to the topic. The general public seems to be particularly enticed or amused by wacky theories, such as the one that barcodes are intended to control people, or the one uh, asserting that NASA faked the first moon landings. There you go. If such theories are attractive to most because they offer a frivolous diversion, this is not to deny that some people take them very seriously, alternative claims about the 9-11 attacks have not only attracted attention from the general public, but have also been the subject of mainstream media documentaries and the object of scholarly investigations. Such academic attention is a precarious undertaking for the involved scholars because of the potential to be seen as a conspiracy theorist unworthy of academic status. Conspiracy theories may be intriguing to some and a sign of paranoia to others, but in any case the label conspiracy theory is a powerful one. The mere mentioning of the term may set off alarm bells, pushing the listener to doubt the credibility of the postulated theory. Given the public fascination with and suspicion of conspiracy theories, it is amazing that the most powerful theories of conspiracy, those that have the largest geopolitical impact, are not recognised as such. And this is where it gets interesting, because they do the, isn't it interesting that... A theory about a conspiracy, such as Saddam Hussein has weapons of mass destruction, isn't really... Conspiracy, also known as a plot, as a secret plan or agreement between people for an unlawful or harmful purpose, such as murder or treason, especially with political motivation, while keeping their agreement secret from the public or from other people affected by it. Would you like to hear more? No! Why? <laughs> what set that off? I have... A remarkable ability to somehow encode into everyday speech the key phrase that sets Apple's AI off. It happens in classrooms all the time. Mm. I'll be in the midst of a discussion and discover, if I'm lucky, my watch is taking dictation, is about to answer a very convoluted question, or it will just start talking halfway through the lecture, mm. even when I put it onto do not disturb mode, as you saw me do I did. before I've you the do recording it. started. But no, she had to intervene. Mm. I, what I'm hearing is that you have magical powers, so I would ask you to keep those in check while we I continue. I make no promises. But yeah, it's interesting that they immediately go for the isn't it interesting that theories of conspiracies such as the invasion of Iraq, and also the 9-11 attacks as an official theory, aren't labelled as conspiracy theories, even though they kind of fit what we should think a conspiracy theory to be. Mm. Yeah, they, in fact, they, they call that the theory that Saddam Hussein had it, um, weapons of mass destruction and was working with Al-Qaeda, they call that the most powerful conspiracy theory of the last decade, and yet didn't actually get called a conspiracy theory. They talk about how um, the US government or various various forces within it conspired to discredit opponents of the second Iraq war, in particular talking about the, the whole Joseph William Valerie plane being outed as a CIA agent thing. Um, and they go on to say, the apparent incapability to recognise the most powerful theories of... Cons oh, no, I should say, like you said, they, they make a point of using the term theories of conspiracy to mean any theory that happens to, 
talk about a conspiracy as distinct from conspiracy theory, which is they're going to say is is a label that gets yeah, applied. So yeah, they're going to look. Conspiracy theory here is a pejorative label. They're interested in the broader class of theories of conspiracies and how that labeling of certain theories of conspiracies as those conspiracy theories affects our ability to have discourse around conspiracies in our society. Yes. So they say, the apparent incapability to recognize the most powerful theories of conspiracy as conspiracy theories, and the tendency of some real-life conspiracies never to be labeled as such, have important analytical implications. They suggest that our analytical faculty to make critical inferences about how political forces may collude is itself thoroughly influenced by asymmetrical power relations and flows. This problem of being, quote, blinded by power, unquote, also has its reverse side. If there are theories of conspiracy that are patently untrue, yet will never obtain the negative label conspiracy theory, one may also assume that there are theories of conspiracy that are true, but will never be seen as true due to the negative connotations of their conspiracy theory label. These insights about the ways in which theories of conspiracy are constructed and consumed, as well as the potential of actual conspiracies to occur, show that our present understanding of conspiracy and conspiracy theory requires substantial review. Indeed. Which is what they're into doing. Uh, they go on to cite David Cody, among other philosophers and other, other academics, and talk about how within the field of anthropology, people have discussed conspiracy theorizing as, as, uh, as they put it, sense-making in a way similar to occult beliefs. So, you know, so the, they say anthropologists will talk about it as conspiracy theories are a, a way for people to make sense of the world by sort of, you know, trying to explain what might otherwise be complicated or chaotic or incredibly complex socio-political societal stuff as in, in simple terms as all oh, the, these bad guys are behind it but they, they they don't want to go along that track and they put forward their own view as however we argue that in doing so they reveal a lingering functionalism that fails to interrogate systematically the links between power and truth because conspiracy theories can also be potent tools in discrediting opponents and in rallying supporters the convergence of truth and use value needs to be at the center of analysis a fruitful assessment of conspiracy theories should thus not restrict its analysis to the postulated claims, but study the socio-political trajectories or roots of those claims. As such, we offer new insight in how we should go about analysing a world in which conspiracies occur, in which conspiracy theorising is rampant, in which the label conspiracy theory is a vital political tool, and in which there is a dire need of dispassionate analysis of conspiracies and conspiracy theories. Now, actually, this is one of these things where they've actually prefigured a complaint which some of us have with some of the more recent literature. So Kassam Kusam's work on conspiracy theories as right-wing propaganda has this kind of lingering functionalism. He won't say, look, we don't want to worry about the content of conspiracy theories. We want to worry about what function do they play in society. His argument is their function is to spread alt-right, right-wing, anti-Semitic political propaganda. One of the standard complaints there is that taking a functionalist analysis of these things is incredibly reductive, and they're already talking about this back in 2011. Mm, prescient. So that brings that initial section to a close and bring, leads on to the next one called Conspiracy Theories as Mischievous Theories. Mischievous, mischievous in brackets. In parentheses, yes. So they define theory in a fairly conventional way and define conspiracy as 
activities that are planned or carried out in secret by at least two political actors. Usually the term conspiracy denotes activities that are illegal or at least controversial, and therefore need to be hidden from public scrutiny. And they do point out that in this paper they're only interested in political conspiracies and political conspiracy theories. Yeah, and this is an argument I've had which is, I mean, so I have a rather broad brush approach towards conspiracy and conspiracy theories, given that I take it that surprise parties are examples of conspiracies, and if you theorise about someone holding a surprise party, you are theorising about a conspiracy, you're engaging in conspiracy theorising, you are generating a conspiracy theory. But I also think it's fair to go, well look, there are certain conspiracies that we take to be more salient, more pressing, more pertinent. And so it's understandable that many scholars restrict their analysis to the political ones, which as Charles Pickton would say, are conspiracies of pith and moment. And to be clear, they're not saying that only political conspiracy theories are conspiracy theories, they're just saying that of, yeah. of all of them, yeah. that it's, it's yeah. only this, yeah. this We're focusing on a, a, a yeah. subset here for the purposes of this analysis. Hmm. So having, having defined it in that way, they say, for many observers, the basic definitions outlined above are unsatisfactory because they do not reveal anything about the theory's truth values and their perceived low performance in this regard. Aiming to account for this poor performance, several philosophers have tried to isolate the epistemological deficiencies of conspiracy theories, and starts going into the very earliest sort of papers by philosophers on conspiracy theories. So they talk about Brian who they say argues that the negative status of conspiracy theories is deserved. That some conspiracy theories, they're wrong here, it's only mm. some conspiracy theories. The mature, unwarranted conspiracy well, exactly. theories. Well, that's, yes, we'll, we'll get more into that in a minute. Uh, they, they talk about errant data and how he treats it and what they think about that. They talk about um, Steve Clark and the fundamental attribution error, which we've looked at that paper as well. And they, they, they basically find fault with both of what they say, or at least with both of what they say, Brian and Steve say. Yes, because I mean, should point out, by this point in time, Steve Clark has kind of given up on the FAE approach. So mm. having written about the fundamental attribution error in the David Cody book, which is out by this particular point, He's going, well, actually, maybe that wasn't the right that wasn't the right way to approach it. I understand the criticisms of this particular move. Mm. So the, the, the authors of this paper say that those two philosophers start with the conclusion that conspiracy theories are likely to be false, and then work their way backward to see if epistemological differences can be found between false conspiracy theories and true official accounts. This strategy has little value if we acknowledge that some theories of conspiracy are true. And I mean, I have to say, re reading through those earliest papers on conspiracy theories, that did kind of seem to be... The tech, there did seem to be a lot of, okay, we know conspiracy theories are silly, so let's see if we can prove why, which quickly became, well, okay, not all of them are silly, but some of them are, so can we identify this, the ones that we're safe to say silly, and kind of went from there. But they do, um, yeah, they talk about Brian quoting his earliest paper. Um, yeah, so, so they, they say of Brian, from his point of view, conspiracy theory should be considered unwarranted as a category. Whereas if we go and look at of conspiracy theories from 1999, Brian says in the conclusion, for Hume, miracles are by definition explanations that are never warranted in believing. If my analysis is correct, however, we cannot say the same thing about conspiracy theories. They are not by definition unwarranted. Yes, so that's, we'll be coming back to that. At the time, 
they basically, I mean, essentially they seem to get Brian wrong, but pretty much everyone was getting yeah, Brian I, wrong. Yeah, I got Brian wrong. Yes. Uh, which, to, and to be fair to, to all involved, is because Brian could have been a little clearer in setting things out and, and tended to jump between talking about unwarranted conspiracy theories and conspiracy the theories in general. more general sense, yeah. Uh, but, but, but once but, again, but anyway, once, but once you get down is to it. Sorting yeah. out language, terminology, mm. et cetera, et cetera. Exactly, yes. Uh, but no, so in this paper they say, although there are many examples of fantastical conspiracy theories that contain little evidence of real conspiracies, high-profile historical examples of conspiratorial behaviour underline that the wholesale dismissal of anything labelled a conspiracy theory is equally out of touch with reality. I mean, it's, it's the, the, the same old conspiracies occur. Yeah. There's, there's no denying the fact that history is full of the damn things. So they go on to look at David Cody and his definition of conspiracy theory, which, as you'll recall, um, he, he bakes in the idea that a conspiracy theory is by definition opposed to an official theory. Yeah, which is a position that Curtis Hagen also has. Mm -hmm. But once again, these are, these are not pejorative definitions. So they're, they're non-pejorative. They're simply saying, look, what is labelled as a conspiracy theory is a theory which is counter to some official theory which involves a conspiracy. Nothing about David or Curtis's definition says these theories are bad or unwarranted. It's just, it's a function of them being called a conspiracy theory. They are tilting against an official theory of some kind. Mm. Now, they kind of like this addition to the definition. They say, this is a valuable definitional addition for two reasons. First, because conspiracies are by definition secretive and concocted by powerful, but not all-powerful, actors who are often able to significantly alter political realities and influence official accounts. Second, because it illuminates the political field in which conspiracy theories are up against their official counterparts whose credibility is primarily derived from the social status and institutionalized power that the holders of these accounts possess. It clarifies why many conspiracy theories have such a hard time being taken seriously, even if they have substantial data at their disposal. Now, having said that, they do acknowledge that, that, that there's a bit of a there is a problem in restricting the definition to only theories that oppose the official narrative. They go on to say, in doing so, it forecloses the possibility to analyse how theories of conspiracy differently mesh with fields of power. It also fixes the official, which is problematic in two distinct ways. First, because what counts as official today may not be official tomorrow. And second, because there may be competing notions of what counts as official, which is an interesting point. Yeah, and it's a point which official. those of us who are against the qualification that we should define conspiracy theories as being... Con uh, contra to some official theory. Yes, yes, I mean, what do we mean by official here? Who's actually credentialing the authorities that make these particular claims? It just seems to add in a layer of complication. And also it has the problem of what to do about theories which appear to be conspiracy theories, which are put forward by officials. Mm. I mean, surely we all want to say the invasion of Iraq looked for those weapons of mass destruction. That was a conspiracy theory, but it was the official theory of the time. Mm. And it gets you into a weird kind of metaphysical conundrum of, well, I mean, these theories go in and out of the official versus conspiracy theory category, depending on what appears to be the whims of the officials or, or the population. I just don't think it's a tenable distinction. No. 
So they end the section, which which frankly wouldn't have been out of place in any philosophical paper, I think. Good bit of bit of definition. Uh, they finish by saying, to recapitulate, the truth value of conspiracy theories cannot convincingly be assessed from a purely epistemological perspective, while assumptions about the subaltern status of conspiracy theorizing limit our understanding of the power dimension involved. Analytic attention should therefore focus on the practice of labeling, an aspect that has received surprisingly little attention. In order to advance, however, we first need to have a clearer picture of the use value that conspiracy theories offer to different actors, their creators, consumers, and adversaries. This entails discussing the various scales of theorizing and the contexts in which this theorizing occurs. Which leads us into the next section, the potency of conspiracy theorizing. Ah, this is where they're going to sell us some pills? Something like that. I think, yeah, this is where we come back to Brian. They, they, they start with the view that the philosophers, philosophers that they had mentioned in the previous sections, quote, focus on the presumed illogical characteristics of conspiracy theories, which, as we say, certainly in Brian's paper, he was, he was looking at the illogical characteristics of a subset of conspiracy theories, the ones that he thought were unwarranted. So it seems like they got a little bit wrong. I don't know, how, how excusable is that in 2011, do you think? Well, I mean, given that I was getting Brian wrong in 2014, very Probably excusable not. indeed. Well, there we go. <laughs> that is my argument there. If I got him wrong three years later, then ipso facto, it's right for them to get it wrong three years earlier. That's how time works. That is exactly how time works. So referring back to Brian and David Cody's words... Although, I, so I'll interject here. So in many respects, given that they, they cite Lee and I was citing Lee, the origin story of Brian getting it wrong, as in Brian having the wrong view, I think is very much Lee Basham's interpretation of Brian's work being so influential in the early literature. So if you read Keeley and then you read Basham's commentary on Keeley and you think, oh, you know, Lee's largely right about some of the, the details here. You end up with a picture of Brian's work, which looks pretty bad. It's just that when you go back to Brian's work, you go, oh, maybe Lee and Lee's successors, including myself, uh, we should have actually gone back and double-checked what Brian actually wrote. Mm. But, but here they are talking specifically about Brian and also about David Cody. And of the two of them, they say... The important point here is that the credibility of a conspiracy theory is derived from a combination of operational characteristics as well as contextual ones. That is, theories of conspiracy cannot be evaluated in a vacuum. Instead, they require a more dynamic approach that analyzes their socio-political locations and roots. And I can't remember, it was David Cody did say stuff along those lines, didn't he? He talked about locating them in a bit of a context. It didn't seem to have a problem with the fact that contexts can change over time or over location. So yes, David's very keen on the idea that conspiracy theory is essentially the modern equivalent of heresy, and the term conspiracy theorist is the modern equivalent of calling someone a witch, which has contextual cues. It's a lot worse to be a heretic and a witch a hundred years ago than it is to be a heretic and a witch today. And I mean, David wasn't writing about this with the current kind of heterodoxy, which is so popular amongst the alt-right online these days. But these days, being a heretic online shows that you're a very sensible person indeed. Mm. Tilting against the woke, that's, that's the real forward-thinking, progressive position 
we're meant to have, apparently. Something like I'm that. I'm trying to make sense of how mm. this works, no. and no one can. No, no. But um, having talked about the philosophers, they then start to get properly anthropological. They say, even though no extensive political geographical mapping of conspiracy theorizing has been carried out, fragmentary ethnographic evidence suggests that the intensity of conspiracy theorizing correlates with the organizational features of societies. Conspiracy theorizing flourishes in situations of societal distress produced by conflict or political transformations, and when there is a pal palpable discrepancy between political rhetoric and experienced social reality. See, for example, Sanders and West's 2003 valuable suggestion that transparency rhetoric may actually trigger conspiracy theorizing. So that, uh, that starts, starts to go over my head a little bit, but then they start referring to some concrete examples. Um, in particular, they talk a bit about a sort of post-collapse Soviet Union. They talk about Algeria in the 90s when a civil war was going on there. And, and they use these examples to basically just show that conspiracy theories flourish in uncertain times or in cases where people have no faith or trust in the government of the time. And then having gone through, I'm, I'm sort of glossing over a, a, a few pages there, but having gone through those examples, they then refer to Lee Basham uh, and in particular his question of how, how conspired our society is. Yeah, which is a crucial question. If you're mm. going to work out the legitimacy of conspiracy theorizing at a given time or in a given place, then you need to have a discussion about, well, how conspired do you think your time or place is? Because the more conspired you think your society is, the more reasonable it is to start thinking, well, conspiracies may well be rife. Whilst you might go, well, you live in an era where conspiracies never occur. In that kind of situation, a conspiracy could still occur, but you might go, it's still, so we have to, there's a high burden to be able to then go, yeah, but I need to take this one seriously. Mm. So looking at, looking at this question, they say, at this point, it's useful to highlight that conspiracy theorizing addresses conspiratorial behavior at vastly different scales. And they talk about the fact that yeah, not, not, not all conspiracy theories are, are created equal. They talk about the, the idea of sort of petty or everyday conspiracy theories, still political ones, though, they're, they're talking about, which um, is, is, I don't know, either, either contradicts or maybe is a refinement of what they'd said earlier. If you recall, back in that earlier section, they talked about conspiracy theories being conducted by powerful but not all-powerful actors who are often able to significantly alter political realities and influence official accounts, and now they're saying, but also, conspiracy theories can just be fairly, fairly minor little things that might happen in the political sphere. And then, of course, they compare that to the other end of the scale, which is your worldwide conspiracy theories, your theory, you know, the, the, the Nazis' theories about Jews running the world, not just the Nazis, but uh, various anti-Semitic theories about Jews running the world, about Freemasons running the world, about the UN running the world, all that sort of stuff. And they say that in this paper, they, they find the most interesting conspiracy theories are somewhere in between the two. They call them conspiracies which supersede the petty without extrapolating suspicions to a global scale, and they call these operational conspiracies, giving more examples of the such from the, uh, the, the, the post-fall Soviet Union. Although there'll be lots of Soviet Union examples you could also lean on as well. Well, yes, yes, exactly. Uh, so they refer to a bunch of anthropologists who've talked about conspiracy theories, and they say that when anthropologists have talked about them in the past, they tend not to address the whether or not conspiracy theories are true. They don't talk about whether or not they are or how you might determine whether or not they are. They just sort of talk about their significance 
uh, within a, a society or a context. And yeah, they they're less about concerned the about the content, form. they're more concerned about the form. Mm. And again, they give comparisons with, I uh, mentioned the occult before here, they talk about witchcraft, um, as you said. Uh, again, sort of saying, you know, it's, it's, they, they're, they're just comparing it with how, what, what, what it does, I guess, within a society. And they say of this, This admirable relativist position grants everyone their own truths and rightly acknowledges that every truth is constructed, but it unfortunately also sidelines the issue that some conspiracy theories are nonsense, while others correctly identify secretly colluding powers. They also say that other anthropologists, quote, only pay attention to those conspiracy theories that were constructed by the relative powerless and were already labelled conspiracy theories precisely because they seem fantastical and irrational. But as we argued above, conspiracy theories should not be seen as a category in and of itself. After all, conspiracy theories start their trajectory just like other theories, and only later do they become labelled as conspiracy theories. Yeah, I guess a better way to phrase that using their own language is, after all, theories about conspiracies start their trajectory just like other theories and only later do they become labelled as mm. conspiracy theories. Yeah. But then again, that's a, you might also go, yeah, but it's also a bit arch. Yeah, well, we'll see. But we'll most, see we get most, a, most academic writing is a bit arch. Well, yeah, I guess there's a bit of that as well, yes. So they... They think that um, contextualizing conspiracy theories might help with this problem. So they, they round out this section by saying, It is only through such a dynamic approach, which emphasizes the social interactions in which the status of theories is defined, that we can make inferences about truth and use value in ways that overcome the functionalist biases detected above. Which leads them into the next section, Travelling Theories and the Power of Labeling. Good album by, I want, I want to call him Wilbur Orson. <laughs> The Travelling Wilburys? Yes. I don't know. Okay. Yeah. What, um, what's his name? Roy Orbison? <laughs> not Wilbur? Not Wilbur Orson? No. 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 It's a shame, really. It's a much better name. What could I, have been? I, I think we should petition the world government to rename Roy Orbison to, Posthumously, to yeah. Wilbur Orbison. Yep. I think that's, that's, that's got some legs, that plan. So... This section, they start by looking at the competing theories of who was behind 9-11. This sort of popped up immediately. You know, they, they give the three alternatives which kind of, kind of went around uh, that, that, that Al-Qaeda was behind the 9-11 attacks, that, that the attacks were an inside job and the US government was behind it, and then the theory that it was Al-Qaeda working with Saddam Hussein, which is a theory that got advanced by some elements within the government. And by some elements in the government, a major, a major, major in the invasion of, the of Iraq yeah. in 2003. Now, they, they say that these were theories that were advanced within the first days of the attack. And I don't know, I, mean, I, I guess some people must have straight away said, oh, it was probably a false flag by the US government because there are some people who just had an innate distrust of the government. I mean, as we've seen, it kind of took a few years for the inside job yeah, to really take this, off. This bit is a little bit ahistoric given what we know about the development of 9-11 conspiracy theories. So yes, there would have been people who said it's a false flag almost immediately. But the mainstream 9-11 inside job theories really start to appear years afterwards. And the US itself is actually not particularly quick to do the Al-Qaeda or Al-Qaeda and Saddam Hussein thing. The initial it's Al-Qaeda and Saddam Hussein hypotheses are largely poo-pooed by the public who are going, well, that makes, that makes no sense. Mm. They're actually enemies. They're not friends. They're not going to be working together. So it actually takes a while for the US to kind of 
trample people and force them to go, well, look, it's going to be these two not-brothers-in-arms fighting together at last. So, yeah, they're, they're overstating their case by saying within the first days of the attack. And, I mean, given their writing in 2011, and assuming given publication may have written the paper in 2009, went through peer review in 2010, it's still several years after the fact. Mm. They could have simply said within the first m- few months or years but I guess they wanted mm. to go with something slightly more salacious. Yes, they, they sort of want to put forward the idea that um, these theories all pop up and as they say, in the first instance these were all unsubstantiated speculations as no evidence had been brought forward yet. I mean, that's true. That is true. Yeah. Nevertheless, right from the start it was predictable in which direction each of those theories would travel. And I guess that's also true as well. Mm. Yes. In that no matter what you think about Bush's cabinet and how members of it were involved in the project for a new American century. Most political commentators were going, well, this is going to be bad for the Middle East because those are hawks in the Bush White House and any excuse to get into a land war they're Hmm. going to take. Yes, but so in this, as they say, you know, you had those three theories, Al-Qaeda... Inside job, Al Qaeda and Saddam Hussein. They said, well, only one of those three was really was was likely to be labelled a conspiracy theory. And wouldn't I you know? It? Which, I wonder wouldn't which one that was. It was? Yeah. Only history could tell. Mm. So they say the reasons for these different trajectories can be found in the political clout that the different theories could attract, and in the ways in which the theories resonated with popular ideas about the national and international political landscape. The trajectory of a theory depends on its location in a given field of power, as well as on the strength of its claim to truth. The various ways in which theories of conspiracy are perceived as situated along two axes, the truth axis and the power axis, can be displayed through a heuristic diagram. Which we, diagram. Now, which we will now draw on screen. In your mind. Yeah. So Josh is going to, and he's going to use his psychic projection powers yeah. to uh, put it in. Can you just describe the diagram as I'm drawing it? Imagine, it's, it's, it's a fairly simple diagram. Imagine you've got, you've got two axes, a vertical and a horizontal. Uh, what they label the, the, the vertical one is power, the horizontal one is truth. And the point, of, the point of the diagram is just to illustrate the fact that... <laughs> so, and is there an X in the middle saying you are here? Unfortunately, oh, there is not. It's a shame. There are some pluses and minuses there. So they, they, they essentially want to, they show that you, you have a theory which can move in different directions towards a positive truth or negative truth, I guess, uh, truth or absence of truth. And they point out that depending on the power of the people putting these things across is as to whether or not um, a theory goes from, um, well, actually, let's, let's put their words to it. They... They they talk about things uh, at best. Those put forward by people in power start at uh, as as contested facts, or, or they might just be thought of as facts right from the start, and then they will be either go to from a contested fact to a fact if it happens to be proven true, or to a, a mistake. Uh, something wrong if they happen to be disproved. However, they'll then say that if you go down the power axis. Theories put forward by people with less power, they thought, tend to start as conspiracy theories and finish as conspiracy theories, no matter uh, no matter where the truth happens to go. And they refer at this point to uh, 9-11 truther David Griffin, whose works we've mentioned at various points. A philosopher previous, of religion. Previous episodes. 
David Ray. David Griffin. Ray Griffin. Um, and the point about the fact that his his theories will never not be conspiracy theories, no matter how many books he publishes on the subject, no matter how much data he puts forward. They say, as long as Griffin and his associates do not have the political clout to shed the conspiracy theory label that has been glued to them, the defenders of the official conspiracy theory will hardly feel pressured to answer challenges to their account. Now, I noted, uh, reading through this, you, you, you'd put a note there pointing out that it isn't, it isn't just powerful governmental figures who put forward the official theory. There are plenty of, of, of normal people, plenty of civilians outside the government who have devoted a lot of time and have prevented a lot of, uh, presented a lot of evidence and data debunking the debunking, uh, supporting the official act and arguing against these conspiracy theory narratives. So that, that doesn't seem quite as clear-cut as, well, if you don't have power, you're always going to be a conspiracy theorist. Yeah, I mean, there are... I mean, it's, a, it's an interesting kind of intersection of power and rationality in that, yes, it is the case that... If people in positions of power are resolute in labelling your view as a conspiracy theory, you have virtually nothing that you can do to stop that label from applying to your work. So you can have insincere people going, well, that's just a, that's just a conspiracy theory. But also, people without power may well go around labelling your view as a conspiracy theory and then back that up with reasons and arguments to go, look, it's one of those pejorative conspiracy theories. It has the features of being a bad theory. And indeed, you might get a situation where the people in a position of power who initially labelled your view as a conspiracy theory insincerely and in that they wanted to make a view they couldn't fight or didn't have time to fight disappear, you may well then find that with time, the public take on that role and they do it on a rational basis. They go, they're not just applying the label as applied by the powerful. They're finding reasons to go, actually, it really is a conspiracy theory. Here's five reasons why David Ray Griffin is wrong about X, Y, and Z. Mm. But they want to say in this paper that only if subaltern theorists are able to claim truth, which demands a vertical shift along the power axis, can their theory status be altered. And uh, they, they then give an example of what they're talking about uh, in the Iran-Contra affair, where basically they want to say that you know, it, w it was written off, people in power wrote off the, the, the stuff as a conspiracy theory, but then eventually other people in power started taking it seriously, and at that point it then became, became a real thing, as they put it. The Iran-Contra affair thus provides a number of insights into the potential trajectories of theories of conspiracy. First, we saw that power differentials between the defenders and challengers of the official story created an uneval playing field that allowed members of the Reagan administration to influence and steer the path of investigations. I saw to point out, Josh, you said uneval pl pl playing field rather than uneven, and I actually quite like that of it being an uneval, an uneval playing field. field. Yeah. yeah, I'm pretty sure it was quite an evil playing field. Yeah in this context. Uh, nevertheless, because both White House officials and Congress members enjoy a high political standing, the challenges of the official account could not be accused of promoting a conspiracy theory. Finally, their ability to assert and substantiate truth claims through legal proceedings made it possible to transform conspiracy evidence into fact. Now there's an interesting analogy here, and this is a very hypothetical situation, because at the moment, in the US, we've got this extreme polarization between 
people who are mostly left-wing Democrat aligned who are going President Trump very definitely tried to subvert an election and engaged in a criminal conspiracy to do it. And Republicans go, oh no, it's just free speech, man. He's allowed to question elections. I mean, you're just trying to criminalize free speech. So at the moment, Republicans are accusing Democrats of engaging in a conspiracy theory about Trump. Democrats are accusing Republicans of believing a conspiracy theory being promoted by Trump. And you can imagine a situation where a candidate who isn't Trump suddenly gains prominence on the national stage in the build-up to the next election, and then Republicans do that 1984 thing of we've always been at war with Oceania, and they go, well, of course Donald Trump is promoting a conspiracy theory. You can imagine that given a change in what I call the political reality, people might go, Oh, yeah, no, no, that definitely is a conspiracy theory and just move the category. Yeah. I mean, that's always a thing we saw in the in previous. So there, we, we, there's always that contrast between the primaries and then the election, where in the primaries, all the candidates, especially you saw that in the Republican ones with Trump, you had all the, um, in, in the in the original primaries, you'd have all Trump's opponents, uh, Trump's rivals, I guess, for the candidacy, talking about what a horrible human being yeah, Trump is and how completely unsuited he was unsuitable. to be a president. Yeah. And then as soon as he gets the can, as soon as he becomes the presidential candidate, they're all immediately, oh, he's a, he's a great man, and he once once he wins, he's you know he's he's our I mean, president, he's the best president Ted we've ever Cruz had. Cruz being the best example. Mm. <laughs> Previously, Donald Trump accuses Ted Cruz's dad of being in the conspiracy to kill JFK. As soon as Trump becomes the nominee and then the president, Ted Cruz loves the man who mm. accuses his dad of being involved in the conspiracy to kill one of America's most beloved presidents. Yes, no, so I can see um, I can see the winds, political winds changing in the manner that you suggest. But um, so in this bit, they, they finish off by giving another example of um, looking at the um, the, the uh, McCain versus Obama election, which was, what, 2008, wasn't it? Um, yeah, back, back when we thought America was going to pull through mm. and become sensible again. Yeah. So they talk about um, how John McCain and, and Sarah Palin spread what were basically conspiracy theories about Obama. There was the, the, the um, quotes about him palling around with terrorists or something and various and, and, and the whole the whole idea that he's a secret Muslim and stuff yeah, like and that. And there were there were some coded references to his parentage, calling out the fact that he had spent a lot of time with liberal professors back in the day, mm. some of which you liked to smoke the doobie. But as they say, Obama, they never, nobody referred to those as conspiracy theories. The idea was that, you know, Obama tended to just laugh them off most of the time. Um, but n nobody was referring to anything as conspiracy theory. The idea, and the idea that they're putting forward in this paper, at least, is because they were both sort of, you know, high power yeah, yeah. individuals. So neither of um, are going to call the other a conspiracy theorist. As they put it, uh, the label conspiracy theory will only stick if the power differentials are large enough. And they're claiming that in that case there, was, there wasn't a significant power differential. But all of this leads us to their conclusion. The conclusion section is called Conspiracy Truth in Fields of Power, and it's short enough that I'm going to read the whole thing out. It says, Conspiracy theories have a stigma attached to them that on the face of it seems well-deserved, but the stigma is assigned to a constructed rather than a natural object. Because there are no persistent epistemological differences between conspiracy theories and other theories, arguing that the stigma is deserved is an empty statement. 
We have demonstrated that attention should focus instead on the contextualized trajectories of theories of conspiracy, as these illuminate both the labeling of specific theories and the fields of power through which they travel. Theories of conspiracy that are communicated by the powerful will never be labelled conspiracy theories, even if they are demonstrably false, whereas theories that are expressed by the relatively powerless will only really succeed in shedding the negative associations of the label. The key point is that the negative connotation of conspiracy theory adds constraints and competitions for truth with official accounts. As suggested, the conspiracy theory label is simultaneously a tool for those in control and an obstacle for those challenging the political status quo. This Janus-faced potential of ideational power manifest in the case of conspiracy theories can be compared to other systems of ideas. A century and a half ago, Marx hinted at some of these same issues in his critique of religion. Marx compared religion to the sigh of the oppressed creature, without dismissing entirely the radical potential of religion. Similarly, conspiracy theorizing can be seen as a means to render an inexplicable world comprehensible, but it may also address and thereby challenge real conspiracies. We suggest that it is important that anthropologists, and social scientists more generally, focus not only on the sense-making value of conspiracy theorizing, but take serious the truth claims and assess these while paying attention to the distorting effects of the fields of power through which theories travel. If, for Marx, religion was a tool for oppression because the ideas of the ruling class are in every epoch the ruling ideas, then we see the inversion of this principle in the case of conspiracy theorizing. The conspiracy theory label is a tool for oppression because its irrational connotations will push subaltern theories that allege an official conspiracy to the margins where it easily becomes the subject of ridicule. There are no compelling reasons for why we should embrace conspiracy theorizing, just as there are no good reasons to dismiss them out of hand. As with other theories, we need to be cautious, but we should be especially cautious when political theories are dismissed as conspiracy theorizing. Amen, brother. Amen. Mm, yes, I can see why you liked this paper. It does it does jibe with your views quite yeah, nicely. Yeah, and I do cite it a lot. Mm, mm. So yeah, I mean that was uh, that was that was a fun read, really, as as far as these papers go. Uh, it, it got it only seemed to get sort of blatantly anthropological in the middle there when they started talking about the, the sort of studies and method methodologies. But um, by and yet large, also quite critical of mm, anthropological yes. perspectives on conspiracy theory. It almost reads like philosophers engaging in anthropology. Mm. Almost. Almost. But yes, I mean, Which, yeah. depending on your view, is either praise or an insult. Yeah, well, I don't know. Yes, you can make up your own mind there. But no, I, yeah, I, I, I thought this was a good paper, and, and I, possibly because it agrees with all of your stuff, which we've been going through, and it's, it's um, interesting to see it back in 2011, these things. You know, as they said at the end, no, no compelling reasons why we should... Um, embrace them or dismiss them, and and that that idea that coming up that, that, that there is a danger in the in the idea that things can be written off by being labelled as a conspiracy theory by the powerful, yeah, which, um, is a yes a very definite concern. So yes, I approve. Rubber stamp. What? Yes, let's let's put it onto the mantelpiece. Yep, and appreciate it for the genius piece that it is. Mm. And that's the end of this particular episode. But it's not the end of tonight's recording session because we have a bonus episode and given that Patreon is no longer causing problems, this will be once again behind the Patreon paywall. Mm. So if you want to find out about the following news stories, you'll need to give us at least a dollar a month or more 
And then you can have all of the Patreon goodness we provide, which is one additional episode per week. And sometimes a few other things along the sides, but only sometimes. Josh, what are we talking about this week? Uh, well, obviously a bit more Trump, because it's all, it's all uh, going down at the moment. Um, better talk about the, the good old Patriot Front. I don't think you should say good, uh, good or old in front of Patriot Front. But, I, but, I'm, but I'm doing it sarcastically, so that, makes, that means I mean the opposite. Yeah, but our, so the, the, but, but our saying US the, listeners the bad don't, young don't patriot understand Australasian ways of trying to do that kind of thing. Anyway, we'll also see what that wacky Elon Musk is up to. And, um, and, and, and it seems like we're going to say things, possibly, possibly slightly negative things. Yeah, there's, there's, about, been, there's been some revelations about US President Richard Nixon that do he paint might him in a bit of a bad, bad light. Stuff. Yeah. yeah. I, I'm shocked, but I know. we'll just have to listen. It sounds like revisionist history to yeah. me, but let's mm. see what the story says. Yeah, so uh, that, is, that is the end of this episode. Um, if you're not a patron and you've just listened this far, well, good for you. Thank you very much for being our listeners. Uh, and if you are a patron, stay tuned for the bonus yet. But for now, I think I'm just going to say goodbye. So I will. Goodbye. Goodbye. The podcast's Guide to the Conspiracy stars Josh Addison and myself, Associate Professor M.R.X. Denton. Our show's conspiracy producers are Tom and Philip, plus another mysterious anonymous donor. You can contact Josh and myself at podcastconspiracy at gmail.com and please do consider joining our Patreon. And remember, nothing is real. Everything is permitted, but conditions apply.